And I hope you have your Bibles this morning. I'd love for you to join me in 1 Corinthians chapter number 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. You'll be delighted to know that uh, the wonderful letter to the church at Corinth only has 16 chapters, and we have just about covered every single one of them. We see the light at the end of the tunnel now, and it is a tremendous, tremendous joy to be able to preach through this wonderful, wonderful book. Today we find ourselves in 1 Corinthians chapter number 15. 1 Corinthians chapter number 15. And while you're finding your place there in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I think it's true to say that life is full of good news and bad news. Let me say that one more time. Life is full of good news and bad news. Did you hear the story about the two fellows that were at the barber shop and they were talking, Bob and John, and uh, the first guy said, hey, Bob, I guess you heard about my terrible misfortune, uh, to which uh, John said, no, what happened? He said, well, I had a terrible thing happen. said, my, my great uncle died. He said, he did. That's bad news. He said, no, it's good news. He left me $50,000. He said, oh, that's good news. He said, no, that's bad news. By the time the IRS got done with it, I only had 25000 left. He said, ooh, that's bad news. He said, no, it's good news. He said, I bought an airplane and I learned how to fly. He said, well, that's good news. He said, no, that's bad news. He said, while I was flying the other day, I turned that plane upside down and I fell out. He said, man, that's bad news. He said, no, it's good news. When I looked down, I saw a haystack run underneath me. He said, well, that's good news. He said, no, that's bad news. In that haystack, I saw a pitchfork coming right straight for me. He said, my stars. He said, that's bad news. He said, no, that's good news. I, I, I missed the pitchfork. He said, man, that's good news. He said, no, that's bad news. I missed the hay bale too. <laughs> Life is full of good news and bad news. Sometimes that it ends with good news. Sometimes it ends with bad news. You think about, for example, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's bad news. They crucified Jesus. But it's good news because he rose again. Jesus is alive. And when you approach 1 Corinthians chapter number 15, you approach it as a parenthetical chapter. So what do you mean a parenthetical chapter? What I mean by that, it's kind of like a sentence, but in the middle of that sentence there's a parenthesis. Now, remember, when you read the book as a whole, 1 Corinthians, when you look at it as a whole, you see that it can only be divided into two parts. The first six chapters, chapters 1 through chapter 6, is dealing with questions that came out of Chloe's house. Chloe's household had some questions about the church. Things weren't going just right. And so, Chloe's household asked questions of Paul, and Paul spent the first six chapters answering those questions. And then in chapter 7, everything changes. In chapter 7, Paul then picks up a letter that he received from the church at Corinth, a letter that had several questions in them. And he began to read all of those questions, and then he answers those questions in, verses, in chapter 7 all the way to chapter 16. But in chapter number 15, there is a parenthesis before he gets to the very last question that the Corinthians have. What he's basically saying is just before he gets to the end, he's, he's going to say, look, I've got something that I want to share with you that's vitally important. And what he's going to share in chapter number 15, 100% revolves all around the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the one single most doctrine that if we don't have as born-again children of God, then we don't really truly know Jesus Christ. The resurrection is pivotal 
to who we are as born-again children of God. And Paul wanted more than anything, as bad as the church at Corinth was, as difficult as it was, as hard as it was, as all the many problems that they had, they were still born-again children of God. And the one thing that set them apart above everybody else in Corinth was the resurrection. They served a risen Savior. And so this morning, as we look at chapter number 15, I'll only be able to get through the first 11 verses this morning. But if you found your place and you're able to stand, would you please stand as we honor the reading of God's Word? What a great summer crowd today. Uh, listen, let me just say this to our audience that's watching online. If you're watching online, I'm glad you're having vacation. Don't forget to bring your ties. Don't spend it on vacation. And I hope you have fun. Don't get burned and come back home soon. I can't wait. In fact, I might see you because in a few weeks I'm heading down south myself. God bless you. Let's look at the scripture now. Notice what Paul says. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand. By which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve, and that he was seen of about five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. There is a wonderful old English word said they died. Verse 7. After that, he was seen of James, then of the apostles. And last of all, he was seen of me also. As of one born out of due time, for I am the least of the apostles, that I am not meant to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace which was bestowed upon me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which is within me. Therefore, whether it be I or they, so we preach, and so ye believed. You may be seated this morning for prayer. Heavenly Father, the best that I know how I yield myself to you, only to be used as your mouthpiece to preach your word. Father, I pray in the name of Jesus you'd speak to our hearts now. And God, I pray you'd change us from the inside out. I pray we'd leave here more encouraged, more strengthened by the word of God than when we came in. And Lord, I pray that if there be one here today that does not know the free pardon of sin, that today would be the day they receive Jesus Christ as their personal Savior and Lord. Lord, I pray whether we're here in this worship center together live or whether we're watching on the other side of the world, may we see the grace of God, may we hear the compassion of the Father, and may we give our hearts and lives to Jesus Christ. Lord, we love you and we are so thankful, Lord, that you first loved us. Pray that you'd be with us now, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. So we find here in verse number one, the first thing that Paul says is, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you. This is so vitally important because this is more than just a transitionary statement. It is a statement that Paul is using to get our attention. The word moreover here is not used much in Scripture, but when it is used, it's a universal word. 
What I mean by that is it is used by a way of opposition and distinction. Whenever it is used, it is used as an added statement in this case to draw distinction between what Paul has just said and what he's about to say. Do not forget what Paul just said. Paul has just spent the last three chapters talking about spiritual gifts. The last three chapters, he says, I want you to be more committed to Jesus than you are your spiritual gifts. And because uh, you're committed to these spiritual gifts, you're not honoring Christ. It's not about drawing attention to yourself. It's about drawing attention to Jesus. In particular, it's about drawing attention, Paul says, to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so Paul, in his love for the people in which the church he started in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, is about to make a distinction, and he does so by saying, moreover, or how much the more. I've said all of these things in this letter so far, but the most important thing I'm going to say to you is about to come out of my mouth right now. And then notice what he says next. He uses the term brethren. You see it there? Moreover, brethren. Here's a generic term that means brothers and sisters. Paul is communicating, if you would, to the brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. You're a brother or a sister in Jesus Christ if you're born again. Is anybody in here born again? They say, what does that mean? Some people say, preacher, you don't need to use words like born again. You don't need to use words uh, regarding salvation and altar calls and all this jazz. You're not supposed to use any of that stuff. People get confused. They don't understand. I'm telling you what, the Bible says you need to be born again. I'm saying you need to be born again. By the grace of God, we can be born again. So what does that mean? It means I died to my sin on March 22nd, 1988. I was raised up to new life through the blood of Jesus Christ. I got washed and cleansed by the blood of Christ. If you've done the same, you're a brother. If you've done the same, you're a sister. I like what John Reed says. You either got a testimony or, bless God, you got a testimony. And a testimony is the fact that you understand the gospel in which Paul's about to give us a very clear presentation of the gospel, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and knowing that he was the Son of God that went to Calvary's cross and died, and on the third day rose again. Why? Because he has power over death in the grave and the hell. And we find that he says, brothers and sisters, what I'm about to say to you is so vitally important. Look at what the, the next word he uses, the next phrase. He says there in the text in verse 1, I declare unto you. When you first read that word, I declare, the first thing you think of is he must be from South Georgia. <laughs> but we find here that this verb declare is in the present tense. So Paul is saying today, I'm declaring this to you. It's in the active voice. What Paul is saying there is, I'm the one that's going to present this to you. It's me telling you this. And it's also in the indicative mood, meaning that what he's about to say is more important than anything that he said up until this point. And it being in the indicative mood means it's a simple statement of fact. It's a fact. He says this is a fact. You can mark it down. I'm declaring this unto you. And what is he declaring? Now, I know we're, work, we're looking at words here in the Scripture. Why? This is the most important chapter in the book of 1 Corinthians. He says, moreover, brethren, I declare unto you what? The gospel. The word gospel is good news. And he's going to take verse 3 and 4, and he's going to expound the gospel. He's going to share the good news. And then he goes on to say that I preached and you received and wherein you stand. 
What he's saying there is, when I came to you, I preached the gospel to you. You received Jesus Christ as your personal Savior and Lord. And when you received Christ, you got saved. And friend, you were standing in a position of salvation today. Dear friend, when you think about salvation, say, uh, when did I get saved? The very moment I received Christ as Savior. They say, well, does that mean I'm saved from my past sins? Yes. Does that mean I'm saved in my present sins? Yes. Does that mean I'm saved from my future sins? Yes. You have been saved from your sin. So does that mean I can do no wrong? No. That's why, why John wrote 1 John. The Bible says if you say you have not sinned, you've lied to yourself. You're not of your father. You're of, the, of your father, the devil. The bottom line is simply this, that we are still living in a sin-sick world. And I'm going to tell you what, it don't take long standing outside. You get dirty. Dirty. And the bottom line is simply this. Thank God that the forgiveness of God has saved me from my past sins, saved me from my present sins, and saved me from my future sins. But friends, I need the feeling of God every day. And so Paul just simply says, in, require, in, in accordance to this, he says, I preached, you received, and you're standing today as a born-again child of God. If you were to die today, you'd go to heaven because you're born again. So with all the problems the church had, this is encouraging in our culture. Out of all the problems the church had, all the challenges the church had, they were still born-again children of God. They were still the bride of Christ. Notice what he says in verse number 2. He says, by which ye also were saved. He said, you're standing in salvation and you're saved. And then he says this, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless you have believed in vain. Now, some say, right there it is, preacher, you lose your salvation. Did you read the context in which Paul is writing this? Paul is not writing from a position that you can lose your salvation. He's writing against non-saving faith. He's writing from a position of you think that you're saved, but you don't have a true heart knowledge of salvation. You didn't exercise uh, Romans chapter 10 and verse 9. The demons even believe, but they tremble. He says you can't believe like the demons believe. You've got to let that trembling motivate you and push you into the arena of childlike faith that to know that when you die you're going to heaven. Why? Because you believe by faith that Jesus is the Messiah. And so he says there, right there, very plain, he's talking about this non-saving faith. You believed in vain. You only believed in your head. You didn't really believe in your hearts. So the doctrine of the resurrection of Jesus Christ here in this text, by which we're studying, is the pivotal point on which all of Christianity turns. And without none of this, uh, Christianity uh, would be in the fact of a matter of a fallacy. Without the resurrected Christ, Christianity is nothing more than human philosophy or religious speculation. And so Paul uh, stops for just a minute in his writing, and he says, listen, I want to dedicate these first 11 verses to four the four evidences of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We wouldn't have any of this if Jesus stayed dead, but Jesus is not dead. He's alive. And so this morning, I want to share with you the four evidences right here in this wonderful passage of Scripture of the resurrection evidence number one the evidence of the scriptures the evidence of the scriptures in verse 3 and 4 Paul identifies that there is evidence within the scriptures on three things number one Jesus's death look at what the Bible says in verse 3 he says for I delivered unto you first of all 
that which I also received, how that Jesus Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. What does Paul mean when he says that? Well, when, he, when we see this word died, first of all, I want you to notice first and foremost that it is what's called the aorist tense. It indicates a definite event that occurred at a point in time. The preposition for in this particular passage of Scripture can also mean concerning, on behalf of, or in order to deal with. That is, Christ died in order to deal with our sins. That's why Jesus Christ died. And the Bible says that the Scriptures proclaim this to be so. Uh, so well, what, what do you think Paul was thinking of when he wrote this? I think Paul was thinking in regards to those wonderful prophets of old, the prophet of Jeremiah, the prophet of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 53. As a matter of fact, uh, let's go over there if we could. Isaiah chapter 53. I'm not going to be able to take a lot of time turning to other texts, but I want to give them to you the best I can. Isaiah 53. Here's what the Scripture says from the prophet Isaiah. Who hath believed our report? And whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as the root out of a dry ground. He hath no form of comeliness. Uh, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire of him. A lot of times we think about Jesus and think uh, he must have been the, 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 the perfect specimen of a man. The Bible says he's hard to look at. That's what the scripture says there. It says there's no beauty within him that we should desire him said he was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. We hid all, uh, we hid as if it were our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carries our, our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him as stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. What's Isaiah talking about? He's referring to the death of Jesus Christ. Jesus really died. History proves that Jesus died. Jesus died according to the scriptures. Zechariah talked about it in Zechariah chapter 3. Even Jonah himself. Do you know Jesus calls Jonah a prophet? Even Jonah the prophet spoke of Jesus' death. We find about the death of Jesus. But number two, we also see Jesus' burial. The scripture tells us there in the text, in our, in our text in 1 Corinthians, and that he was buried. The word buried there is a verb, and in this case, it is also used in the aorist tense which means that there was a definite event that happened at a pivotal point in human history. The burial of Christ is what certified that he really died, that he paid the ultimate price for our sins. And of the whole world, Jesus Christ's burial was a fact in history by which was witnessed by many of that day, even those that did not believe, even the secular humanists of that day. Matthew talked about it. Isaiah talked about it. Job talked about it. Job even said uh, in, in that wonderful little book of Job, it says that there was clay that was moved to the seal. He refers to the seal that was sealed over Jesus' tomb. What we find in Scripture is the Bible is true. The Bible says the evidence of Jesus Christ's resurrection is his death. 
you got to be dead in order to rise again. His burial, you got to be surely dead in order to rise again. And then, thanks be unto God, Paul says, the resurrection. He says, and that he was raised on the third day. You see it there in the text. Not only did Christ die for our sins, but he rose from the dead in a resurrected body. I love that verb there. It's the a verb, if you got your pen, pencil, lipstick, or mascara, I would underline that, those two words, was raised. Why? Well, because it is not in the aorist tense. It's fascinating. Like these two previous verbs, it's not in the aorist tense. It's in the perfect tense. It's a perfect tense verb which indicates that an event happened in the past that has, that has uh, consequences which carry forward into the present time. It happened then and it carries all the way to, the, to today. He resurrected one day and he's still resurrected today. Bless God, that right there gets me excited. <sighs> David, what's that old phrase you say? You say, that'll make a, that'll make a what? What do you say? It'll make a, a turtle pull a plow or whatever you say? That'll, that'll make a possum pull a turnip plow. Sure enough, I'd like to see that happen one day. But that's the way I'm feeling in my heart. Man, I'm so excited. I, I, I'm like that possum. The Bible says it's happened according to the Scriptures. As the death of Christ, as the burial of Christ is sure and is real, so too is sure is real is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jonah spoke about this. Could it be that Paul was referring to Jonah when Jesus even quoted Jonah? It says, just as, over in Matthew chapter 12, verse 40, just as Jonah was in the belly of the whale three days and three nights, so must the Son of Man be. Uh, Justin uh, Lou Allen, our student pastor, he preached at the 815 service, did a tremendous job. I mean, a he, he hit a home run. Tremendous. He talked about Jonah. He, he preached in Jonah chapter 2. And he, he didn't know. I told him I was going to reference it in my sermon today. Uh, in Jonah chapter 2, you find that when that fish swallowed up Jonah, there Jonah was in the belly of that nasty, stinky whale. And I love what, what, uh, what uh, uh, Justin did. He, he compared, he made a comparison between Jonah in the Bible and the whale of Pinocchio. Y'all remember that Disney movie, Pinocchio, and Jonah? He said, it wasn't like that. He said, there Pinocchio in the bill of that well. It's like you washed up on some beach with a little umbrella, you know. And it just, hey, he said, that wasn't the way it was. And he's right, it wasn't. It was a deep, dark pit that swallowed up Jonah. And why did that thing swallow up Jonah? It swallowed up Jonah because Jonah was running from God. Now, I'm here to tell you, we live over here in northeast Georgia. I'm not sure, but I don't think there's any whales or Loch Ness monsters in Hartwell or Lake Lanier, nor Lake Burton for that matter. But we don't, we don't live real close to them, and we live close, but I mean, it's just not right out looking out to, today over it. But I'm telling you what, mankind and humanity is running away from God. And God may not send any more whales to swallow people, but I'm going to tell you what he does swallow people with, and that's death. Death is the whale that's swallowing everyone. Death even swallowed Jesus. That's why Jesus made reference to the whale. He says, just like Jonah was in the belly of that whale, he said, Jonah died that day. He escaped humanity. That whale consumed him. And the Bible even says that when that whale vomited Jonah up on dry land, that whale didn't want to turn loose of Jonah. Did you ever notice that in Scripture? 
The Bible says that God spoke to the whale, and the whale then vomited. I could see that whale with his lip. Mm-mm, mm-mm, I ain't turning it. Mm-mm, it's a good preacher, God. I'm, on, mm, I'm enjoying this dinner. And the Bible says that when God speaks, creation moves. God told that whale, spit him out. And God, in his godlike fashion, did things the way I can't even imagine. He did the Heimlich on that old, that old whale, and up come uh, Jonah out of, that, out of the belly of that fish. And what did Jonah do, and why did Jonah get out? I'll tell you why Jonah got out. He got out because he had a true conversion. And I'm telling you what, the only way to get out of the, be- the belly of death is to have a true conversion. You got to trust Jesus as Lord and Savior. I'm telling you what, the well of death is chasing every one of us. It chased Jonah. It chased even Jesus. And it even swallowed Jesus. But he didn't know what to do when he got a hold of it. He could only hold him about three days. And then it had to turn loose. Bless God, if that don't light your fire, your wood's wet. He said right there in this passage of Scripture, he says, he says, I delivered you, first of all, the gospel. And the gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. This, he says, according to the scriptures, is evidence that Jesus is alive. Number two, there's a second evidence. Y'all didn't listen fast enough. Too much time got away from me. Come on, preacher. Number two, the second evidence I want, y'all get this. Yeah, y'all get this, is the evidence of the eyewitnesses. We're going to go through this one really fast. The evidence of the eyewitnesses. Paul basically says there were five eyewitnesses. I want to identify four because my next point deals with the fifth one. He says, first of all, that Jesus Christ appeared, number one, to Peter. That's in verse number five. The Bible says he appeared to Cephas. Cephas is Peter. The Bible doesn't give a specific time or place where Jesus appeared to Peter, but we know uh, through Scripture that he appeared to Peter. He appeared to him. Uh, we know that it's, this appearance may have been, we can assume some scholars have a tendency to believe that he appeared uh, to him uh, sometime uh, after he appeared to Mary and before he peer, appeared to those on the road to Emmaus. Uh, speculation uh, is what they're saying, but the Bible says that he appeared to Peter and we know that he did. Number two, the second thing that he says, or the second eyewitness is the twelve. Now, here's something that people have a a great deal of trouble with. We find that Jesus appeared to these disciples in Luke chapter 24, verses 35 and following. And also John chapter 20, verse 19, we find a record of that, that he appeared to the 11, not the 12. The term 12 here in this particular passage of Scripture obviously is not referring to Judas, who's dead. Uh, the, The term the 12 is a term to reference the disciples. Uh, God in uh, his uh, wonderful wisdom and his great love for us brought these men in to walk closely with Jesus and a twelfth one was added even at that. He says that Jesus appeared. He said, well, wait a minute. Let me see if I can understand this. So the Bible says that Jesus appeared to the twelve, but they were only eleven. Yes. But he brought in another one that was twelve. Yes. But you got to remember this too. Regardless if Judas is dead or alive, when the resurrection happened, he knew who Jesus was too. He saw him. 
Number three. He says, he also also seen by 500. You see that there in verse 6. And that he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time. The Bible doesn't provide specifics about this occasion. But nonetheless, it was, an, uh, it was a large enough group where Paul references and says, some are still even alive today during Paul's day. He says, some, we see some of these guys even to this very day. They're walking around. They saw the resurrected Christ. And then Paul says, number four, in verse number seven, he appeared to James. James, the half-brother of Jesus, was the key leader of the Jerusalem church in Acts chapter 15. In Acts chapter 1, verse 3, we're told that during the 40-day period between his resurrection and his ascension, Jesus appeared to all the apostles on several occasions. And, And even an example of this is recorded in John chapter 21 in verses 1 through 14. The bottom line, what Paul is doing is saying, listen, church, I want to tell you there are some eyewitnesses that put their eyes on the risen Savior. They saw him die, they saw him buried, and they saw him come out of the grave. Number three, we see also the evidence of the Apostle Paul. In verses 8 through 10, we see the evidence of the Apostle Paul concerning the resurrection. Paul, remember, is giving, if you would, the evidence of the resurrection. He's saying everything that I've said up to this point is important. But I've got something even more important to share with you. More important than spiritual gifts. More important than Christian liberty. More important than than anything that I've said in this letter so far. And what is more important than any of that? The resurrection of Christ. For without the resurrection, we don't have a risen Savior. So Paul says, here's evidence number three. The evidence of the Apostle Paul. In verses 8 through 10... Paul cuts out, and he says, I've seen him too. I've seen the risen Savior with my own eyes. And what I love about Paul's description is, this is a sermon within a sermon right here. I'm telling you, this could preach just by itself. But Paul says three things that are worthy of our attention. The first thing I want you to see is, I want you to see Paul's personal sin is recognized. Look at what he says in verse 8 and 9. He says, and last of all, He was seen of me also, as of one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles, that I am not called, I am not meant to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church. Paul is recognizing his personal sin. Dear friend, the only way to get saved, the only way to get born again, the only way to receive Christ as Savior, the only way, is you got to have a recognition of personal sin. Paul recognized the personal sin in his life. And in these two verses, Paul recalls this personal sin in which he experienced. He remembers what it was like to be lost and operate under the flesh. He says in verse number 9, I persecuted the church of God. I don't have time to read them all, but jot down Acts chapter 9, verse 1 and 2. In that passage of Scripture, the Bible tells us about how Paul was persecuting the church. Listen to what the Bible says in Acts 8, 3. As for Saul, that's Paul, that's before he got saved, his name was Saul. The Bible says he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Can you imagine being in a church service like this today? And Saul, who was a religious fanatic, no, don't get me wrong, he loved God, but he loved God in the wrong way. 
he didn't see the Messiah. He didn't recognize the Messiah. And so he says, I'm going to do everything I can to stomp out this false religion. And he would enter into the church. He would grab men and women by the head of hair and drag them out. He was there when Stephen died. He watched as they stoned him to death. He was there. He saw it all. He says, I'm not worthy. I wreaked havoc in the church. Acts chapter 22, verse 3 and 4, Paul said this, I am indeed a Jew born in Tarsus of Sicilia, but, but brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel, taught according to the strictness of our father's law, and was zealous towards God as you were all today. I persecuted this way to death binding and delivering those into prison, both men and women. He said, I even killed Christians. Acts chapter 26, verse 9 through 11, Paul once again talks about it, and he does it here to the church at Corinth. Can you hear it in his voice, church? He says, I don't deserve this. I persecuted the church of God. Personal sin recognized. Can I ask you a question, sir, ma'am? Please, hear this, hear this spitting preacher. Have you recognized that you've got personal sin in your life? Number two, not only do you see personal sin recognized, in verse 10 you see personal forgiveness realized. Look at what he says in verse 10 back in our text. He says, watch this, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. He's referring to the day he got saved. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace, which was bestowed upon me, was not in vain. That's to say, he didn't get saved and just sit down and soak it all in. He said, I got saved, and I'm going to get to work. Hey, I've lost about seven pounds. Can y'all tell? I'm, I feel a little bit lighter right now. So what does I have to do with the text? I'm excited about it. I'm excited about the resurrection. Personal forgiveness realized. Look at what he says again in verse 10. He goes on to say, But I labored more abundantly than them all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was in me. Paul's not boasting here. He's not trying to say, Hey, look what I did for Christ. He says, No, by the grace of God, I got saved. And when I got saved, I just didn't sit in church and do nothing. I went to work for God. I'm going to tell you what, we need some more people in 2019 that love God and that'll go to work for Him. Man, we need Sunday school teachers. We need nursery workers. We need babysitters. Bless God, we need people that'll teach little babies and rock them while mom and dad can hear the preaching of the Word of God. Paul said, when I got saved and I got forgiveness, I went to work. But it only came by the grace of God. Paul is remembering the day he got saved. You remember the day Paul got saved over in Acts, Acts chapter 9? The Bible tells us he was on that road to Damascus. And as he was journeying down that road to Damascus, the Bible says in Acts chapter 9, verse 3, as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he says, Who are you, Lord? And then the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. 
So he trembling in astonishment said, Lord, said, uh, what do you want me to do? And the Lord said to him, arise and go to the city. And, I'll, and you'll be told what you must do. Man, I'm telling you what, that is a spectacular event. Can you imagine God knocking you out of your Honda, knocking you out of your Ford or Chevy, knocking you out of your vehicle while you're traveling from here to McDonald's? And him knocking you off and saying, why are, why are you kicking against the goad? You remember what a goad is? A, a goad was an instrument by which the farmers would use as they were plowing. They wanted to keep that, that mule or keep that uh, oxen or whatever the case may be. They wanted to keep it going straight. And so they'd goad that thing right there in the, in the, in the hide there. So get it. So stay. Let's go. Get up. Let's go. Get plowing. And, 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 and Jesus says, why are you kicking against the goad? You can't do that. Paul says, God, God tells uh, 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 Paul at this time was Saul. He says, "You stubborn mule." I'm gonna be honest with you. There's a lot of stubborn mules here today. And God's been patient with you. He's been loving you. He's been kind to you. He has met your needs. And we've kicked against that. I ain't gonna tithe. I ain't gonna teach. I ain't going to do this. I ain't going to do that. And bless God, some of them, I ain't going to get saved. I know it ain't good English, but I'm telling you, it's what we say. And the whole time, God's knocked us off our rocker. You look around your life today, sir. You look around your life today, ma'am. It ain't all peaches and cream. Could it be that God's got your attention? Is he saying, quit kicking against me? I am trying to get you to come to me. I ain't going to do it for you. You know this? God's not going to do it for you. God's not going to make you get saved. That's your choice. He's instilled within us what he hasn't instilled in any other animal. And that's a free will to accept him or reject him. I got to go. I got to go. Cut. 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 When he encountered Jesus... Saul learned the gospel. And at that very moment when he received Christ as Savior, and he understand personal forgiveness, he realized Jesus was the Messiah. He had, he had seen the risen Lord. And then watch this. Here's the third one. This is good. Verse 10, the latter part of verse 10. Personal evangelism was revolutionized. Look at what he says in verse number 10. He says, yet not I, but the grace of God, which was in me, which was with me. What's Paul saying there? He said, man, when I got saved, you couldn't shut me up. I had to share Jesus with somebody. I had to share him with somebody. We went, uh, just last week, we went to the Rickwood Classic. The Rickwood Classic is a baseball game in Birmingham, Alabama. It's at the oldest major league ballpark in the nation. They have preserved it to the best of their ability. And the White Sox organization, uh, which is affiliated in Birmingham, uh, they have the Barons. They're called the Birmingham Barons. They, they play one game a year in this location. One game a year. It's in a rough part of town and have to play in the daytime. 
And in playing that game, we, we, we went over there. And we were with a good friend of ours. It was me and Mark. And uh, my two little boys went with us. I wanted them to experience. It was so neat. The umpires had, they had their little bow ties on. Everybody dressed in old-time regalia. I mean, it was just really, really cool. Like stepping back in history. And uh, we had a guy, that, Coach Minton. He was with us. And this, this brother loves Jesus. You can tell Coach Minton has been in the room. Because Coach Minton will leave gospel tracks everywhere. And as a few times I got up and obviously I was behind Coach Minton because I went to wash my hands. And two out of the four times I went to the restroom, uh, there I was, went to go to wash my hands and there was a track. And it's the same track over and over again. A track about Mickey Mantle that, that Coach kept leaving. And then Coach turned around and he said something that astonished me. He says, you know who leaves tracks everywhere? I said, who? He said, Mark Edwards. I said, what are you saying, Coach? He says, oh, Mark challenges me. He challenges me to leave those tracks everywhere. I think probably one of the biggest challenges today is we're not challenged enough. We're not challenged enough to reach others for Christ. I mean, you hear preaching on having a broken heart for Christ. You hear sermons on having a broken heart for the lost. And you Look, but here's this. We can pray that God would break our heart all day long, but until we get challenged, we'll never win anybody else to Christ. You hear what Paul's saying here? Paul is saying, listen to me, church. He says, by the grace of God, that's the only way I'm able to do what I'm doing. It's by His grace. Paul is insinuating in this text that you realize that people want to kill me now because I have rejected Judaism and I've embraced the very ones I've been persecuting. And I'm doing it because Jesus is alive. And then here's the last evidence. Watch the evidence number four. And I, I'm, I'm out of time now. I'm two minutes late. The evidence of the preachers. <laughs> the evidence of the preachers. Look at what the Bible says in verse 11, and I close. There's just two things here. He says, therefore, whether it were I or they. What does that mean? That's a collective proclamation. He says, it didn't, it didn't matter if it's me or if it's uh, Peter or James or the 12 or the 500 or the preachers that come to you, Pastor Shane, Mark, David. He says, it doesn't matter. We, we or them. It doesn't matter. Whoever, the preacher that's coming to you that proclaims, he says, we preach. We, we preach, he says. These preachers preach. And what do they preach? The gospel. The death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's no accident that behind me stands a big old cross because it was there where the victory was won. And by the way, it's empty. Watch this. A collective proclamation. It doesn't matter if it's us or them. And then here's the last one in the latter part. A consistent transformation. Notice it. And there's that conjunction. So you believed. We preached you believed. There's a consistent transformation. Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, I'm way, I'm out of time, I'm late. I know I've got to get y'all to Sunday school. I've spit all over myself. Here's the thing I want to say to you in closing. 
from the very moment I got here to the very moment I'm standing before you today, consistently preached the gospel. Consistently people have been saved. Not because of me. Not because of John. Not because of David. Not because of any preacher. We're just the instruments. We're the delivery boys. We're, we're what God used to deliver the evidence of the resurrection. Dear friend, is there anything that you know 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 that you know? I mean, is there anything like that? I did a funeral this past week, last week, maybe it's two weeks ago. I did a funeral two weeks ago. It was a, a sweet lady. I was her pastor many, many years ago. She got brain cancer. And uh, she met with Miriam and I, and she said, Would you sit down and talk to me about my funeral? It was the funniest thing. I wish you could have been there. We were at uh, in Gainesville, Georgia, is where I met her, Miriam and I did. And we're sitting in uh, a Ruby Tuesdays or Chili's. I think it was Chili's. We were sitting in Chili's. And of all places, they put us right in the center of the room at lunchtime. I mean, right in the center. And there's people in front. There's people in the back. And because of this particular type of brain cancer this woman had, she couldn't hear. It affected her hearing, Dwight. She couldn't hear a thing. And so she, she talked really loud. I mean, loud. And so we pull up, and she says, Hey, preacher, you ready to talk about when I'm going to die? And, and, and I can't help it. I, I, I noticed people. I noticed people started turning their heads. So I said, Yeah, I'm ready to talk about that. She said, Well, I got some things I want to say. And in that loud, because she couldn't hear. And, and, and so uh, they started playing the music, I guess, to try to drown her out. Anyways, it just got unbearable. And finally, I just turned, and I said, I said, uh, why don't you and I communicate over email? That'll be best. She said, yeah, that's fine. So we had a, enjoyed our dinner and yelled at each other the rest of the hour. And then went home and her and I communicated. Well, she died. And on her deathbed, in our communications, we were trying to figure out what she, what she wanted to tell her family. And she wrote a letter, and in that letter to her family, she told her children that she loved her. She uh, told her grandchildren that she loved her. She told her uh, friends and family members that she loved them and she's going to miss them. And then right in the center, I mean right in the middle of the letter, she put this. I've invited Pastor Shane to speak today so that he can tell you the greatest news on earth. News that you can know that you know, that you know, that you know that when you die, you're going to go to heaven. She put it right in the middle. And she put it out there, know that you know, that you know, that you know, that you know. Man, she's, I mean, you talk about serving up a softball for me. She served it up. And I gave the gospel. And that day, that room, four glorious lost people gave their heart to Jesus and got saved. I mean, got saved. I'm telling you, the gospel still works. And when the grave speaks, I'm talking about when a dead person that's born again, I'm talking about those Jesus says, look, I, my body might be in this casket, but I'm with Jesus. I don't know about you, but the Bible tells me that there, God has put eternity in my heart. That means I know I'm going to spend an eternity somewhere. Somewhere I'm going to spend an eternity, either in hell, either in heaven or in hell, one or the other. And the Bible says in 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, you can know that you have eternal life referencing heaven. So how do you know that? 
Romans chapter 10, verse 9. The Bible says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. That's what Paul told the church at Corinth. That's what I'm telling you today. Here's the crossroads that you're at today. Do you know that? Do you know that you know that you know you're going to heaven when you die? Let's bow for prayer. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, you say, Preacher, I've been thinking about this. I do not know. I do not know if I'd go to heaven. I think I'd go. I hope I'd go. Maybe I'd go. But I'm just not sure I'd go. Dear friend, listen to me. The Bible says this. Today's the day of salvation. Today's the day you can give your heart to Jesus. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, listen, friend, sir, ma'am, please. From your heart to God's heart, quit playing games. Would you cry out to the Lord and say something like this to him? Would you say, Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I've been swallowed by the whale of death. And I'm surrendering to you. This morning I ask you to save my soul. I trust you as my Savior. And I repent of my sin. Thank you for saving me. I will never be ashamed of you. In Jesus' name.